Section 2 of Malaria, a neglected factor in the history of Greece and Rome, by William Henry Samuel Jones and Ronald Ross et al. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 2. Malaria in Ancient Greece. A few years ago, the writer was investigating the change in the Greek character which took place during the 4th century BC. The following results seemed then, and still seem certain. There does not appear to have been any increase of immorality between, say, 500 to 300 BC. But nevertheless, morality changed. Home life took precedence of city life. Patriotism decayed, and lofty aspirations almost ceased to stir the hearts of men. In art, there appeared a tendency to sentimentalism. Philosophy in many quarters became distinctly pessimistic. Some schools of thought actually took absence of feeling or absence of care as the highest goal of human endeavour. Dissatisfaction and querulousness are marked characteristics of the age. By 300 BC, the Greeks had lost much of their manly vigour and intellectual strength. The cause of this change appeared to the present writer to be partially the decay of religious feeling and partially the growth of the human intelligence, which resulted in dissatisfaction with existing institutions. Doubtless both these tendencies were factors in the change, but they did not seem at the time of writing the earlier essay, and they do not seem now to be sufficient by themselves. The recent investigation into the prevalence of malaria in Greece and into its effects upon the inhabitants suggests that a similar agency may have been at work during the 4th century BC. Malaria, like influenza, differs from many other diseases in that it does not strengthen a people by weeding out the unfit. Its result is to produce a general lowering of vitality without bringing about a very large number of deaths. Malaria usually becomes chronic, at least until a comparative immunity has been gained. In such cases, despondency and nervous stability leave a permanent mark upon the victim. It should then be carefully noticed that, quite apart from the actual facts of the case, malaria would tend to produce those characteristics which have been mentioned above. Of course, malaria must have been prevalent to bring about any change in the character of a people. Now, the extent of the infection is another distinguishing mark of malaria. Recent statistics show that some 40% of the population of Greece have the disease. Immunity among adults may come after a while, but ere it be attained, the general health will be lowered. All children in some districts, many in others, pass through a childhood subject to a succession of weakening febrile attacks. Four points must be discussed in the present inquiry. 1. Did malaria exist in Greece? 2. If so, to what extent was it prevalent? 3. When was it introduced? Or when did it become common? 4. Is there any ancient evidence of its effect upon character? All these aspects of the question are important. Nevertheless, it must be noticed that the precise date of the introduction of malaria is by no means so vital a point as to determine the period when it became widely extended. It may have lurked in corners without doing much harm, but its prevalence would necessarily bring about a decline in vigour and a change of character. Means of identifying malaria. If care be taken, malaria is by no means a difficult disease to identify, a good test of its periodicity. Any febrile complaint with a definite tertain 
or quartane periodicity is certainly malarial. No other infection exhibits this type of periodicity. You may be sure, then, that a patient complaining of fever recurring every 48 or 72 hours, whatever else he may have, certainly has malarial disease. It does not, however, follow that a fever with a different periodicity is not malarial. A patient may be infected with both the tertane and the quartane parasite, or there may be cases of double infection, i.e. cases where the patient has been twice infected with the same kind of parasite, so as to bring about a new periodicity. For example, a quotidian fever may be the result of double tertian infection. It may then be safely concluded that a considerable number of quotidian fevers will be malarial. But in order to strengthen the case as much as possible, no stress will be laid upon quotidians in the present inquiry. Another excellent test is enlargement of the spleen. This is the test which was most used by Major Ross when he was investigating the prevalence of malaria in modern Greece. He calls it a fairly trustworthy one, provided that no other cause of splenomegaly be present. Once more, however, in order not to overestimate the evidence, it would be well to use splenic enlargement as a confirmatory test only. Symptoms of a malarial attack The paroxysm is divided into three stages, the cold stage, the hot stage, and the sweating stage. 1. The attack begins with a feeling of weariness, headache, nausea, and vomiting. The patient begins to shiver, and there is a reduction of the skin temperature, combined frequently with internal fever. The pulse is quick, small, and hard. Urine is increased. 2. The second stage is marked by the heat and redness of the skin. The pulse is full and pounding. Delirium is sometimes present. Intense thirst is suffered. 3. The third stage is characterized by more or less sweating, followed by a cessation of fever or even by sleep. The first or third stage, or both, may be mild. The most common variation is the hot stage alone. The disease causes anemia and splenomegaly as after effects. It would not be surprising if the symptoms described by the ancient medical writers did not agree in all respects with those given above. Diseases have a way of changing more or less in degree and even in type, but it will be found that in this case the type has remained practically unchanged. Greek terms for fever. Before going on to inquire into the prevalence of malaria in ancient Greece, it will be necessary to discuss the equivalence of the English word fever. The most common general term is pyretos, derived from pyr, fire. It is properly used in the sense of heat in Iliad 22.31 of the Dog Star. Feri pola pyreto dielioi votoisin. Greek text is displayed on the page. The ancients seem to have taken the word to mean heat, as is plain from the Latin poets Virgil, Lucan, and Statius, who appear to have this line in mind when talking of the burning dog star. On the other hand, Ascolaist remarks that the word might mean fever as well as heat. It is a fact that the sense of fever does not fit the passage. Summer and autumn are the seasons when fever was most prevalent in Greece. It seems likely, however, to judge from the usage of letter non-medical writers that either nosos or the pruel 
would have been used if a disease had been meant. In any case, even if fever be the meaning here, it is not necessarily malaria. It might very well be typhoid. In the present inquiry, that meaning will be assumed to be true, which tells most against the writer's own theory. After this solitary instance in Homer, there is a large gap. Hesoid does not appear to use pyretots, although he might well have been expected to do so. The present writer cannot find that the word occurs again before Aristophanes. Herodotus does not use it, nor does Thucydides. It is remarkable that when the latter, in his description of the plague, wishes to express feverishness, he seems to avoid the word pyretos and uses instead kavma or thermi. On the other hand, when Galen is describing the same plague as roughly quoting the word of Thucydides, he employs pyretos twice within a few lines. The places in Aristophanes where pyretos seems to occur for the first time after Homer are interesting. In the Wasps, date 422 BC, occurs the following passage. And he says that he attacked last year the shivers and fevers which by night strangled your fathers and throttled your grandsires, etc. A fuller explanation of these words will be given later. It is sufficient to notice here that from this time onwards, peretos is a fairly common word, while the verb peresol, first apparently in Europe, circle 228, and ferricrates in Athens, 375, I have an attack of fever, also frequently occurs. In the Greek medical writings, which date from 400 BC onwards, peritoi are divided into two classes, A. Continuous, Thynacheus, and B. Intermediate, Dolepontes. The second class is again subdivided accordingly to periodicity. The simpler forms for which give 1. Quotidians, Aphiramenoi. 2. Tertians, Tritaioi, and 3. Quartans, Tertatoi. The first mention of this division, which is to be found in non-professional writings, occurs in the Timaeus of Plato. This passage is to the effect that a body produces 1. Continuous burnings, Sainechi Kavmata, and Peretoi, when suffering from excessive fire, Pier, 2. Quotidian, Puritoi, when suffering from excessive air. 3. Tertian, Puritoi, when suffering from excessive water. 4. Puritoi, Hortan, when suffering from excessive earth. In the most popular speech, then, there is a tendency to limit Puritoi to definite fevers, namely, to those exhibiting a certain periodicity. It cannot be said that this tendency is present in the professional writers, though even there, puritoi, usually means intermittence. A similar tendency is noticed in modern times, in districts where scarlatina is constantly prevalent. He has the fever will nearly always mean one thing. An ordinary person will not usually apply the expression to a typhoid patient. On the other hand, to a medical man, both typhoid and scarlatina would be fevers. The present discussion will be occupied with the intermittence and in the next section their symptoms, as given by the ancient medical writers, will be fully described. In the meantime, two other names must receive attention. 
1. Kaphos. This fever, the burning disease, is very clearly described by Hippocrates. The chief symptoms are bodily ache and lassitude, intense thirst, sleeplessness, and sometimes delirium. The tongue is rough, dry, and very black. There are gnawing pains about the bowels. The olivine discharges are watery and yellow. Major Ross says that this disease must be typhoid only, so that it will be neglected in the present inquiry. 2. Epiolos. This curious word first occurs in Theognes. It is used twice by Aristophanes. Galen gives a brief account of the disease. It was a protracted quotidian, and of such a kind, that the patient felt fever and shivering at one and at the same time and in every part of the body. He adds that some Attic writers used the word to denote the shivers which precede an attack of fever. Major Ross, who has given his opinion after examining such evidence as a present writer could put before him, inclines to the belief that Epiolos, the disease, was malaria or typhoid, though it might possibly be multi fever. Of course, it is also possible that the disease was one which does not now exist. Did malaria exist in Greece? If tertian and quartan fevers existed among the Greeks, they certainly suffered from malaria. But it will be useful to apply the confirmatory test, splenomegaly, and to enter more fully into the symptoms and variations of the intermittent fevers which are described by the ancient medical writers. The evidence that enlargement of the spleen was common is copious, but practically confined to professional works. This is only to be expected, especially as the Greeks had the excellent sense not to talk overmuch about their ailments. In a curious passage of the Timaeus, Plato describes the spleen as a receptacle for the purgations of the liver, and accounts in this way for splenic enlargement. When it is remembered that the Greeks held that tertians and quartans were caused by bile, the words of Plato at once become full of meaning. Hippocrates says that men who drink marsh water get enlarged spleens. The phenomenon Hippocrates really observed was that dwellers in marshy places suffer from enlarged spleens. His interpretation of this phenomenon is incorrect. The enlargement was, in all probability, caused by malaria conveyed from one person to another by mosquitoes bred in the marshes. Splenic enlargement is also caused by typhoid, and it may be remarked in passing that there is a tendency among modern physicians to diagnose most of the fever cases described in the Hippocratic writings as some form of the disease. This may be correct. Malaria and typhoid are sometimes extremely difficult to distinguish in ancient writings, especially when the former is of a complicated type. But typhoid would not account for the many other fevers mentioned in the same writings which have a definite tertian or quartan periodicity. These must be malarial, and no one who reads the few passages about them which occur in the non-professional writings or the accurate descriptions given by hypocrites and Kellen will fail to come to the conclusion that they were among the commonest of the diseases with which the Greeks were afflicted. But the risk of confusing malaria and typhoid must make the historian cautious. Many fevers are described in the ancient writers which are, in all probability, though not certainly some form of malaria. In the present inquiry, no stress will be laid upon these, in order that there may be a firm foundation of fact upon which to build. For these reasons, it seems desirable not to discuss at length the vast number of cases in which splenomegaly is mentioned in the old medical writers. 
it will be sufficient to state that in a great number of instances it is allied with other symptoms which evidently show that it was not caused by any disease so serious as typhoid. Pyamic fevers, other than malaria, may of course be meant, but the probability is that the latter disease is the one described. One or two examples must suffice. Hippocrates states that in autumn, quartan fevers and splenic diseases are very common. The same writer says that bilious persons who have enlargement of the spleen are evil-complexioned, ulcerous, and emaciated, and suffer from foul breath and constipation. These are most certainly the symptoms of malaria. Cachexia. Malarial fevers in ancient medical writers. Major Ross has kindly afforded the following particulars about malaria. There are four kinds of malaria parasites, quartan, mild tertian, malignant tertian, and quotidian. Quartan. Fever lasts on the average nine hours and recurs every third day. Mild tertian. Fever lasts 11 hours and recurs every other day. Malignant tertian. Fever lasts up to 40 hours, rises slowly, halts for hours, declines a little, and then rises again to a greater height, and lastly falls, recurs every other day. Quotidian. Fever lasts 6 to 12 hours and comes on every day. But a quotidian fever may be produced by 1. Three parallel generations of quartan parasites, or 2. Two generations of tertians, or 3. One generation of quotidian parasites. There are also mixed infections due to different parasites together and double quartans. To discuss fully all the different accounts of quartans, tertians, and quotidians, as described in the Greek writers, would occupy a large treatise. It is certain, therefore, that they were continuously prevalent, and that they were more common diseases than other kinds of fevers. But it is not the object of the present inquiry to enter into details. The main point is to identify these fevers with malaria. The best description is to be found in Gallen, who seems to have made a special study of periodicity. Although Gallen is a late writer, who lived in Rome in the middle of the 2nd century AD, there is no risk in accepting his evidence. His account agrees in all essentials with the testimony of older writers, and there is no evidence that Galen describes diseases unfamiliar to his predecessors. In the treatise Peritophon, Galen divides intermittence into 1. Quotidians with daily access, 2. Tertians with an access every other day, 3. Quartans with an access every third day. Quintans, and even less frequently recurring fevers, are also mentioned. There is also distinct recognition, both in this treatise and in others, of mixed and double infections. One instance only shall be quoted here, in the book Periteridon. He remarks that a fever with attacks recurring every day is liable to be diagnosed by the uninitiated as a quotidian. But if a man takes pains and have a genuine interest in medicine, he will not forget that the same effect can be produced by two tertians or three quartans. There was also a fever which he calls semi-tertian, which is regarded as a mixture of the tertian and continuous quotidian. It was a dangerous disease, attacked usually men in the prime of life, and especially in the autumn, who was marked by the length of the attack. There seems to have been much irregularity in the length and severity of the paroxysms. This fever was probably some variety of the tertian type, with a mild or malignant, produced by mixed or double infection. As an example of intermittent fevers, Galen gives a full account of the tertian. 
It begins with rigor and finishes with sweat and vomiting of bile. In some cases, the intermission is short. Such fevers equals protracted tertions, paroctine and nonces. Occasionally, the fever lasts for 40 hours or even longer. To descend to details, tertian fevers begin with shivering and chill in the extremities. The pulse is harder contracted. Gradually, the chill is superseded by fever and the pulse becomes quicker and larger. The patient often feels internal fever while the limbs are still chilled. The fever gradually increases until it has spread over the whole body. Then it subsides little by little, the decrease being usually tois plus tois, accompanied by sweating. The references in the Hippocratic writings to tertians are very numerous, and nothing would be gained by quoting them in full. The same applies to quartans. Special mention, however, may be made of the passage in the first book of the Epidemics, where, among other interesting remarks, it is stated that the quartan is the longest but least severe type of intermittence, while the semi-tertian is the most deadly. From other medical writers are quoted below two passages of Autobasius, dealing with tertians and quartans respectively. For reasons given above, no further stress is laid upon quotidians. Extent to the Prevalence of Malaria The preceding section has not only shown that malaria existed in ancient Greece, it has also proved it to be widely prevalent. Even if all fevers except tertians and quartans be disregarded, these are mentioned so frequently, and by such a diversity of writers as they leave no doubt whatsoever. From the year 400 BC onwards, there is a vast quantity of evidence which points to the unmistakable conclusion that Greece was constantly in the clutches of an insidious and demoralizing foe. Plato, Aristotle, the Hippocratic writings, the long line of evidence represented by the works of Galen and Oropasius, all tell the same story. There is even a reference in an inscription. That reference to tertians and quartans do not occur more frequently in non-professional literature is not surprising. The Greeks were not in the habit of talking about their ailments. At any rate, when occasion arose to mention a fever, it would rarely be necessary to distinguish one kind from another, Tritophos from Amphirimenos, and so forth. Especially would this be the case if the various forms of malaria were so common as to be designated in the popular speech by Paratoi, without further qualification. Though medical writers do not observe such a limitation, there is some evidence that the people did, as a general rule, limit peritoi to malaria. Thucydides seems particularly careful to avoid the word peritos in describing the feverish symptoms of the plague. The words he uses are kavma and fermi. Plato also speaks of xenice, kavmata, and probably applies the term peritoi to continuous fevers because he conceived them to be due to an excess of peer. The use of kavma by Plato and Thucydides is a remarkable coincidence. Unfortunately, there is not sufficient evidence to warrant a positive conclusion. But nevertheless, the frequent mention of malaria in the medical writers, combined with the remarkable passage from the Timaeus, makes it extremely likely that malaria was often called in the popular speech by the simple name of fever. If this be so, whenever the words peritos, perisol, occur in non-medical writers, there is a strong presumption that malaria is meant. In any case, no doubt whatever can be entertained of its wide extension. Owing to the incompleteness of the evidence, due entirely to the fact that few Greek states have left us any literature, 
it is impossible to say for certain how far malaria spread. Attica was certainly attacked, as it is attacked now, and of course it was prevalent in the districts which came under the observation of the medical writers. It is clear from the Hippocratic treatises on airs, waters, and places that, one, the writer had been able to collect evidence about malaria from many districts. Two, the most you could say was that certain districts were less liable to malaria than others. Without going to the extreme of saying that no district was immune, there is every reason for supposing that malaria was widely spread. When was malaria introduced? Up to the present inquiry has had a firm foundation of indisputable facts. It is easy to prove that malaria was present in Greece. It is difficult to find out when it first made its appearance or when it became endemic. It is proverbially hard to prove a negative statement, and the present writer readily admits that it is impossible to show that there was no malaria in Greece before a fixed date. This does not mean that there is no evidence. On the contrary, the evidence with respect to Attica at least is very strong, but it is cumulative, and depends for its full force upon a due consideration of many lines of indirect testimony. In the first place, there is no reference to any disease which can be malaria, with two exceptions, before the middle of the 5th century. The first exemption is Peretos, in Iliad 22.31. Now it has been pointed out that here the word may mean heat merely. But in any case, it is not necessarily malaria. But let it be taken for granted that the word does refer to malaria, it only shows that the disease was common in Homeric times and a place where the poet lived. This is probably Asia Minor. On the other hand, Hesoid, a poet of Boeotia, which is a land especially suited for the growth of malarial mosquito, never uses the word peretos, even though he might well have been expected to do so. The whole question is uncertain, but whichever interpretation of peretos in Homer be accepted, nothing whatever can be proved as the existence or rather the prevalence of malaria in those parts of the Greek world with which we are chiefly concerned. The other reference to a disease which may be malaria is the word epiolos in Theognis 1.174. Here again no conclusive result can be reached. The disease which went by this name is so vaguely described by letter writers that modern experts cannot diagnose it with any certainty. Major Ross suggests typhoid or malaria or malta fever. Surely, very little can be made out of this single passage, even though malaria be the disease intended, for, at most, it is not proof that the disease was common, and does not show, in the least, that it was prevalent, or even that it existed in Attica. And it is with Attica that the present inquiry is most concerned. It is possible that malaria did exist in parts of Greece, both Greece proper and greater Greece from fairly early times. The fact that so large a portion of Greece never reached eminence may be due to the presence of a scourge which seems to blight the energies of its victims. But Attica, with its dry climate, would be late in becoming badly infected. If this be so, and it must be remembered that it is surmise only, a few words may be said about the possible fountainhead of the disease. Malaria is an African disorder, and the intercourse emergence may have carried it from Egypt to Greece, either directly or by way of Asia. A curious side light is thrown upon the question by a passage in which Herodotus describes the marsh dwellers of Egypt. They are, he says, much troubled by gnats, conobs. To afford protection from the bite of these insects, every man, pas anir, 
wraps himself up at night in the net, amphivistron, with which he has fished during the day. It is very likely that this region was a plague spot from which malaria spread to Greece and elsewhere. The Athenians who took part in the disastrous expedition to Egypt, 456 BC, may have become infected and brought back the disease to Attica. It would not necessarily spread with any great rapidity until conditions were favourable, as soon to be seen later, the most favourable conditions occurred during the last twenty years of the fifth century. The last few paragraphs have necessarily been little better than guesswork, and it is time to turn to the facts. It is in the Wasps of Aristophanes, 422 BC, that the word Peretos first occurs in Greek literature, with the single exception of the Iliad, 2231. The passage is a striking one. Last year, says the poet, I attacked the Apialot, and the fevers which were throttling your fathers by night and strangling your grandsires. The language is, of course, figurative, and refers to the attacks of Aristophanes upon Sycophantae. But obviously the passage gains in point if Athens had recently been visited by an outbreak of fevers which were preceded by shivering. Now in the year 4 to 25, the Athenians had been busily engaged on the island of Sephactiria. But it is at least a remarkable coincidence that at the present day, Sephactiria is one of the worst malaria centres in the Mediterranean. If it be true that malaria visit Attica about this time in the form of an epidemic there, is every reason to suppose that it would stay, and, in course of time, become endemic, for the land offered favourable conditions. Disease is an invariable accompaniment of war, and the Peloponnesian War was no exception to the general rule. But with regard to Attica during this war, there were certain circumstances which are rather peculiar, while they have a direct bearing upon the present question. The small farmers of Attica were compelled to leave their farms and live in Athens, the Piraeus, or even between the long walls which connected the port with the upper city. The land was no longer cultivated to any extent, because the yearly incursions of the Peloponnesians prevented the ingathering of the crops. The necessary supplies of food were imported from abroad, the powerful Athenian navy making it possible to feed the people in this manner. In course of time, cultivation of the soil must have come to a complete standstill, for in the year 413, Decelia was permanently garrisoned by the Lacedaemonians, and Attica became practically a waste. But to allow land which has been under cultivation to lie untilled and undrained is to offer the most unfavourable conditions to malaria. A few infected persons are enough to set the parasites breeding in the mosquitoes which hatch out from stagnant pools of the wasteland, and then these insects begin to do their deadly work. It is certain that had there been infected persons in Attica during the Decilian War, malaria would have become endemic. It may be noticed in passing that a precisely similar condition of affairs obtained in Italy during the Hannibalic War, 218-204 BC, Vast tracts of land must have been neglected, and apparently left untilled for many years. For in the next century, pasture land was largely superseded ploughed land. It is to say, the least likely, that the malaria parasites introduced from infected quarters of Italy, by Greek slaves perhaps, or even by the Carthaginians themselves, spread gradually over the country, and helped to produce the decline which historians have traced during the 2nd century BC. There is other evidence that malaria was, during the 4th century BC, a disease but recently endemic in Attica. It seems to have attacked chiefly adults, for Galen, in the 8th book of his treatise on Hippocrates and Plato, 
blames the philosopher because he does not classify diseases according to the ages which are most subject to them. In the passage from Hippocrates, quote from Gallen, Biratoi are included among the diseases to which childhood is especially liable. This may mean that Hippocrates was acquainted with regions in which children were attacked by malaria, but older people were particularly immune, while Attica, in which Plato lived, was recently infected. It is extremely difficult, except in marked cases, for any one but a modern specialist to diagnose malaria in young people, so that it is quite natural that Hippocrates speaks of Piratoi without further qualification. Major Ross informs the present writer that in modern Greece, young children are subject to a series of attacks up to the 15th year, and that then they become partially immune. He is inclined to think that if the disease occurred very commonly among older people, it probably had been recently introduced. On the other hand, malaria is not nearly so marked in children as in adults. The important point of notice is that it would have been difficult for Hippocrates to diagnose malaria in children although he could have told they were suffering from fever. How Malaria Spreads As is well known, the malaria parasites infect a certain genus, Anopheles, of mosquitoes, which in turn infect man. Thus, malaria cannot enter a country unless both factors be present, even though conditions be favourable. A striking instance of this fact is afforded by the islands of Mauritius, which, up to the early 60s, was a health resort for Anglo-Indians, although malaria parasites must have been constantly brought in by malaria patients. But in an unlucky hour, the end of fields, mosquito crept in, an epidemic followed, and now malaria is endemic in the island. Sir P. Mason gives a vivid account of the way in which malaria may attack a village community. Imagine, he says, some district in which anophilas, mosquitoes, abound, but which is luckily free from malaria. A stranger with parasites in his blood comes to the village and is bitten by the local mosquitoes, which thus become both infected and infective. The disease spreads rapidly and is at first severe. After some years, the survivors become immune, or partially so, but the children become infected soon after birth and continue to be diseased for some years, gradually becoming immune. This is a condition of every village in every highly malarious district. The adults are immune, the children are nearly all of them full of malaria parasites. In a less highly malarious district, the adults are not always immune. In ancient Greece, malaria certainly attacked adults. Malaria was not then a highly malarious district. The prevalence of disease among older persons may be a sign that the infection of the country is recent, and this explanation, which is certainly a possible one, must not be overlooked. There is a most important passage in the Hippocratic Treatise on the Nature of Man which bears very closely upon this point. The author is discussing at some length Peretos, Sinotkos, Amphiriminos, Trateos, and Tetartarios. He speaks for the origin of the Cortan in the Black Bile, remarks that it is much longer than the Tertian, and that the age most subject to it is a 25th year to the 45th year. He does not say anything about the ages subject to Quotidians and Tertians, and he does not say that young people were not attacked by Quartans. On the other hand, Hippocrates does not say that children were attacked by the Peritoi, and many of these, at least, must have been malaria. The inferences which it seems fair to draw are as follows. 1. The districts which fall under the observation of the Hippocratic school were infected with malaria. 
either they were not subject to it, so as to be, in the words of Sir Patrick Manson, highly infected, or more probably, they had but recently been overrun by disease. 2. If this be so, Gallen's criticism of Plato referred to be in the last section may mean that Attica had become infected even more recently. 3. Immunity and comparative immunity did not escape the notice of the ancient doctors. The Hippocratic author states plainly that if quartems occurred during the given period, 25 to 45, the attack was slight. In modern medical language, after 45, a man became partially immune. Before 25, the disease did not assume a marked form. 4. The silence of the Hippocratic author upon Tertians and Quotidians suggests that in young persons, malaria was usually Tertian or Quotidian, or at least that it appeared to be of these types. See Gallen quoted on page 60. Effect of Malaria Upon the Greek Character Before any attempt is made to treat this question from the modern scientific standpoint, it will be interesting to inquire whether the Greeks themselves ever traced psychological states to the influence of malaria. The word melancholia, with its cognates melancholikos and melancholo, occur for the first time in Greek literature very soon after the word pyretos becomes common. Page 22. Melancholo is used by Aristophanes in The Birds, 415 BC, and in The Plutus. Plato uses the word melancholikos in conjunction with methostikos and eroticos to characterize the tyrant. The last reference shows that the meaning of the words has little to do with what we call melancholy. Burnett, in his note on Aristotle's Ethics, 1150b, translates melancholikos, excitable, hot-headed. It goes on to say that in Aristophanes, melancholan means to be crazy, and that the modern word which approaches nearest to the meaning of melancholikos in Aristotle is nervous. Now the derivation of these words is obvious. The melancholikos is the man who is inflicted with I melaniacholi. Furthermore, in the medical writers, tertian fevers are said to be caused by yellow bile and quartan fevers by black bile. Of the many references which could be given, Orebesius 6, 12 may be taken as typical. Quartan fever says the passage has its genesis in Melania Colli. In other words, the Greeks, with their usual acuteness, noticed that malaria made a patient neurotic, and when they said that a man was melancholikos, they meant, when the word was first employed, that he was like one who had had malaria. If this association be kept in mind, many passages, especially in the medical writers, become full of new meaning. Large spleens are caused by excess of the melancholy humour, says Gallen. Even more striking is the aphorism of hypocrites, that long-continued fear and depression are a sign of melancholy, i.e. malarial cachexia. In another place, the same writer says that, in autumn, the malarial season, occur cases of melancholy, and so on, of the most striking symptoms of malaria, and of the anemia which follows it, it is said by modern observers to be nervousness, resulting in crossing of temper and mental depression. In short, the three cognates, melancholia, melancholikos, and melancholo, showed that malaria was common, that it was supposed to influence the character, and incidentally, that it probably became endemic during the last quarter of the 5th century.
and it must be carefully remembered that the main point to prove is not when malaria was first introduced, but when it first took a firm hold of the inhabitants. Since the bilious complexion which suggested the term melancholia is a more obvious symptom than splenic enlargement, it is not unnatural that the former, rather than the latter, gave a new word to the Greek language. Nevertheless, the works of the medical writers do suggest that splin and its derivatives hovered on the verge of becoming part and parcel of the popular speech. It is interesting to note that we still call a hot-tempered person splenetic, although the derivation is seldom present to the consciousness. In any case, the way in which splins, splinio, and the like are employed suggests that enlargement of the spleen was a very common element. The utmost caution is necessary in connecting the change in the Greek character with the increase of malaria. In the first place, a royal battle has been waged over the question whether the Greeks did decline in morality during the 4th century. The fact that such a heated discussion has taken place is sure proof that the problem is intricate. It is equally sure proof that some change at least was in progress. But it must be remembered that even if decline is not very obvious by the year 300, it is so a few years later, and there is no reason for supposing that a treacherous disease like malaria, which, moreover, shows itself in a series of slight attacks, will produce striking results all at once. Its effect is rather a gradual but sure weakening of a people's powers. However, the present writer is convinced that the effects of malaria are quite discernible even before the year 300. The change during the 4th century is just that which malaria would produce. When making a special study of Greek morality some years ago, the present writer could not find that immorality grew during the century under discussion. On the contrary, the moral sense seems to have developed and become more sensitive. The terms conscious and duty receive a fuller and deeper meaning. The people certainly become more humane. On the other hand, they lost much of their brilliance. Patriotism was still an honoured virtue in Athens, but her citizens no longer showed the initiative, spirit, or determination without which patriotism is but a hollow name. Pessimism in philosophy, sentimentalism in literature, morbid brooding over death, an inevitable contingency which in the great age was acceptable with a noble resignation, complete the picture of the change. The above conclusions were reached by one who would not yet entertain the idea that malaria existed in ancient Greece, and so attributed the phenomena to psychological causes. Of course, it is not pretended that malaria was the only factor in the change. The Greek outgrew his small city-state, and became discontented with his institutions. He lost not indeed his religion, but his living religious faith. History shows conclusively that without such faith, no nation can survive for long. The means of gratifying luxurious tastes were afforded by a highly developed mercantile system. It may be that the unnatural vice in which the Greeks habitually indulged to an extent which seems almost incredible, sapped their powers and energies. And finally, the suicidal Peloponnesian War, with the deadly plague which smote Athens, must have produced weakness and hastened decay. But the effect of all these forces would be increased if there were present a more insidious enemy, weakening the nerves and rendering its victims more likely to succumb to the disintegrating influences of their environment. Let due weight be given to the usually accepted causes of the decline of the Greeks, but two factors must never be forgotten. 1. Malaria was prevalent, apparently increasingly prevalent, during the 4th century. 2. The effect of malaria is always disastrous. 
as one reads the terrible accounts given by those who have made a special study of the disease the conclusion is forced upon the mind that no nation deeply infected with malaria could have achieved the triumphs of the fifth century and that its certain prevalence in the fourth century must have caused a decline major ross writes to say that the disease affects all young children and remains in them until about the age of fifteen when they become partially immunized it causes intermittent and remitted fever with enlargement of spleen and anemia which makes the patient thoroughly ill with the accompanying loss of temper and perhaps of character he adds that in adults the effects are more marked still and that when children are affected they either die or in recovery show few symptoms which can be recognized by the ignorant populace incidentally this latter remark shows how malaria may have been far more prevalent in ancient greece than the extent evidence can possibly prove at the present day there are nearly one million people in greece out of a population of some two million five hundred thousand who are infected with malaria all these have been weakened physically and intellectually by attacks which usually recur again and again statistics are available only because modern science has such perfect means of diagnosis in ancient times the majority of cases would have passed unnoticed who can say that ancient greece was not equally plague-stricken but you notice that owing to the imperfect state of the science of medicine it was impossible that testimony should be transmitted to us so surely it is a just inference that greece must have been affected far more than can be proved in the present inquiry stress has been laid only upon those diseases which were undoubtedly malaria there is however a vast amount of evidence which has been purposely suppressed page after page of the medical writers is devoted to diseases which may have been nay almost certainly were malarial the probability that symptoms of malaria are combined with those of typhoid makes all such evidence treacherous it seems better to disregard it altogether so as not to introduce into the inquiry more doubt than is absolutely necessary many attacks of malaria are mild in character the greeks themselves observed that quartans were generally not severe this fact explains why we have no definite mention in ancient writers of a time when it first came or when it first assumed endemic form many a greek must have been smitten with malaria without feeling any symptom other than that those he could express by the term peresol but the permanent influence of malaria is not to be estimated by its mildness a severe epidemic such as one of smallpox creates much stir at the time and causes many deaths but does not last long as victims are comparatively few in all probability such endemics do not lower the physical efficiency of a people even endemic diseases like measles which cause such trouble to modern children are transient and in the great majority of cases do not permanently injure the health but with malaria the case is different often not at all severe it recurs again and again childhood may be one long sickness the effects of which the adult carries to his grave his faculties are dulled and he is less efficient generally experience proves that if malaria be epidemic among a people there must be a decline physical intellectual and moral conclusion malaria was certainly prevalent in many parts of greece including attica during the fourth century bc though greece was not highly infected in the technical sense of the word as used by sir patrick manson the evidence of language and the fact that older people were frequently attacked suggests that the disease has been but recently introduced the use of the word melancholia and its cognates shows that the greeks themselves noticed the effect of malaria upon character 
the change which gradually came over the Greek character from 400 BC onwards was one which would certainly have been aided, and was in all probability at least partially caused by the same disease. The evidence given in the preceding pages is, from the nature of the case, chiefly cumulative. Many but certainly not all of the arguments brought forward might be attacked by a clever opponent. But taken together, they are very strong, and it must not be forgotten that a vast amount of testimony, far exceeding that which has been offered, might have been cited if the writer had not wished to exclude, as far as possible, all cases and symptoms which might imply either malaria or disease of the typhoid type. It is probable that many, it is certain, that some of these were malaria. All this should be borne in mind in passing a judgment upon the question. If anyone is still in doubt as to the devastating effect of malaria upon a character, he should consult a specialist in tropical diseases, or have a few words with one who has himself suffered from the disease. His doubts will then vanish. Skepticism on the point is only possible in a land in which, happily, malaria is no longer prevalent. End of section 2